Hello and welcome everyone to what I hope is the first of many episodes of this Ross Griffin podcast. My name is Ross Griffin and I'm going to be your host today. Today we have the incredible privilege of listening to my long-time and childhood best friend Joel Griffin. He's also my cousin. Um, in this episode we're going to talk about a plethora of different subjects, but namely we're going to be talking about homeschooling and why his parents decided to pull him out of the regular school system. We're going to be talking about all the different mental health issues that he's had over the years and how they were diagnosed and how he's dealt with them. Some of these include ADHD, delayed sleep phase syndrome, bipolar and depression. For someone like myself that has for a long time been skeptical of mental health and the stigma around it and how people kind of take their mental issues or their mental disorders as their identity i personally found this discussion very very helpful especially considering that joel was my best friend and i didn't even realize half the stuff was going on so please enjoy this wide-ranging and absolutely fascinating discussion with joel griffin this episode is brought to you by the roundup it is my very own newsletter and it is a weekly newsletter that I send out to currently over 300 people every week. It's growing incredibly fast by between 30 and 50 people per month are subscribing to this newsletter. I share every week, I share at least one cool thing that I found on the internet, a thought of my own or a synthesis of the two, as well as tips, tricks and other interesting things to do with entrepreneurship, self-development and productivity. You can head over to my website rossgriffin.com and hit the newsletter tab to subscribe. The newsletter is also a great place to ask me questions, interface with me and possibly even get onto this podcast if that's what you so desire. Joel, I want you to kick us off by telling us um, about Steve Irwin and why he was such an influential person in your life. So, um, quite a fond memory of mine. Uh, well, one of the dearest um, at the at that far back in my life, I was at my grandmother's house. Uh, Steve Owen came on television, and he had a very high energy, and I'd say the thing that attracted me most was he was playing with animals, and... Um, at that time, that was uh, a major part of my personality. I liked animals, I drew animals, and uh, this guy played around with them. So he very quickly became my hero. And from there, I became convinced that he was my dad, at least to some extent. I had plans to run, run away uh, from home, but he was in Australia and even back then I knew that I couldn't get to Australia by myself. So um, I just became content in knowing that I would get to him someday, I would go work at Australia Zoo. And then when <laughs> a year or so later, when I actually came to my senses, he just became um, someone I looked up to. Um, Lindy Owen was quite attractive, and I decided that she was going to be my wife. It was, it was, yeah, all, all, all weird memories, um, but yeah, um, it, 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 it all blows into a single, a single mesh of ideas. But there was some sort of timeline 
and then eventually when he died i i do remember that quite clearly he uh i received the information it died the day before and i just cried all day i was kicked out of my for, classroom for context um, for for people listening how old were you i am not entirely sure um i know that i was in grade two and i would have about to seven do or eight years old. That. yeah that was about that sounds about right yeah um so, so the so reason i, I asked about steve Irwin and I, I have the unfair advantage mm. of knowing you quite well but uh i can't help but look at what you're interested in now and wonder how much of an influence he had on like the person you are today because like i know you're incredibly passionate about the outdoors and spearfishing how much of an influence do you think he had on who you are today i would say he definitely strengthened my personality. I would say that he's definitely not a root cause. Like I mentioned, he was, uh, I was attracted to him because he liked animals, but I liked animals prior to that. I liked the outdoors. And um, I guess maybe he convinced me that it's something that, that I could be as incredibly passionate about. So that's, um, yeah, that love for animals was formed when I, uh, I believe probably my dad would take me to uh, see wildlife and I was encouraged in it. I think the more I, I think back to the things that I love today and uh, the cause, the origin of what spawns that was pretty much just encouragement. Uh, what adults would encourage in me say that this is something that you're good at uh they encouraged me to pursue passions and that and that was my love for the outdoors um my love for animals my love for drawing and my love for stories and then eventually my love for taking pictures which led me to be want to be a wildlife photographer i i was thinking about it i've been thought about it a while a lot but a lot of the career choices I've taken in life was simply uh, can be traced back to being encouraged to take pictures on game drives with my family. I was handed my grandmother's camera and told to take a picture. I would take a picture. They would say, well, it was a beautiful picture of a zebra draw. And that was the, the affirmation I received through that immediately gave me the direction in life that well, gave me the motivation to select that as a direction of life I wanted to take. So then I wanted to be a wildlife photographer, and then I wanted to be a wildlife videographer, and I wanted to be a filmmaker, and I ended up at AFTA. Like, that is entirely, that, that simple bit of affirmation as a child is what shaped my entire career um, arc. And um, So yeah. before, we, before we talk about your career, let's talk a bit about some of the hobbies that you and I had growing up now. Um, you you and I obviously grew up being pretty close friends. And I really like what you said about um, your parents investing in things that you were interested in. And I couldn't help but think of like at least five things instantly came to mind. But what are, what were some of those things that they invested in? Um, the, the first thing that comes to mind is archery. 
I remember them sending us off to archery and then also um, canoeing and paddling. Um, I remember that. What are, what are some yeah. other things that come to mind that they, your parents invested in and like fostered that passion for? There was a massive amount and it was a result of me constantly finding something new and uh, pursuing it passionately and then pestering my parents until they eventually gave in and somehow <laughs> ended up finding a place where I could do archery. I, because we were in Peter Maritzburg, I was never able to do fencing, which I wanted. I just wanted to do sword fighting. Um, could not find a place to do fencing and I was not able to convince them to get uh, Falcon because I was like eight years old and they didn't, I couldn't do falconry at the age of eight. So uh, the things that we actually did was, as you mentioned, paddling, archery, I did horse riding, I would, I, I did a bit of, yeah, a lot of photography, as I've mentioned, and yeah, lots of small things. I wanted to uh, work with my hands. I would do woodworking and all of these things with minimal, <laughs> minimal tools available to me. I would borrow my dad's pocket knife and immediately start building stuff outside. So then for my birthday, I would get a tool, a tool set and, um, I very quickly outgrew my capability. What, what my dad had in his toolbox was not enough for what I wanted to do. So I would be provided with tools. So I was very blessed in a lot of ways. The amount of yeah hobbies that I was able to pursue was, was one was great and a lot of some of it was taking initiative but i would require every now and again so tools and um i once created a list of my hobbies that i actually did pursue and it uh came to about 20 different hobbies or so some of which are small like lock picking and all of those but it's yeah definitely all required some sort of support in that yeah that, that's really fascinating and i think when I, when I think back to the childhood that you and I had, I think the fact that your parents and my parents were so supportive of um, what we were interested in, I think for a lot, played a major role in like the people that we are today. So I wanna, mm. I wanna segue into homeschooling. Um, you were homeschooled most of your life. Um, at what, what age did you start homeschooling? And can you remember why? Uh... At the age of, again, I can't quite remember the age, it was grade three and it was well, about halfway through grade three. So around the age of nine, eight or nine, I would say. And I, I had been homeschooled previously to actually coming to uh, a school environment uh, for a year or so. And so my mom was familiar with the whole process, but I believe that it was a combination of factors, but a big part of it was my the amount I struggled in school. I would say that it, it definitely played a factor. It's, I know my parents would often be called into parent-teacher meetings and be told about the uh, low marks I was getting or the trouble I got into for, I don't know, drop-kicking someone 
Um, so, so when you say you got, in, were you struggling at school? You were struggling from mm. like a relationship um, kind of perspective as well as an academic perspective. Is that correct? Yes, I would partially. Um, I would say more so academic wise, um, but I did I did conflict with a lot of other students, and I would say some of that conflict was positive. I would say. Um, and wouldn't, wasn't really picked up by the teacher, like a very memory from that time I do have, and I still find it amusing to this day is, was once I was, I was going, uh, somewhere around in school and one of the metrics or someone of a much higher grade asked some sort of, asked for some sort of sign of submission. I can't quite remember what that was, but I immediately laughed at them or did something that was immediately defiant and this made them angry. They were with um, a posse of friends and they wanted to show that they were tough and now this um, child was being defiant and that uh, immediate, it led to him shouting at me and I became even more defiant. I'm like, what are you going to do? Um, he walked away angry and then I think I pulled my tag out at him or shouted at him or something. He turned around and slapped me across the face. And I think I was in shock for a moment. I just didn't say anything or do anything. And then I laughed at him and then he walked away because there was nothing more he could do. He didn't really have power over me. So um, I was very defiant. I hated the school system and I would behave in the same way to teachers, the same defiant. So yes, I would. Relation. So basically you are a nightmare kid. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was what, like a good a good kid, but also a nightmare kid. Yeah. So at what what age were you diagnosed with ADHD? Um, age I was about seventeen, sixteen, okay. seventeen. So that that's really interesting to me because when I was in grade two, which is about the same grade when you left school where you were struggling, I went. Mm through a whole chain of educational psychologists and various other people because my teacher who who is, was a very interesting person to say the least uh she was convinced that i had adhd because i just mm -hmm. refused to focus and this is why i find the whole thing of um adhd diagnosis so interesting because after going through a string of educational psychologists and these other specialists they basically concluded that i was just male and there was nothing really else wrong with me. Um, in mm. fact, I would, I would actually say that focus and the ability to focus is one of my, my strengths at the moment. So, I mean, I found yeah. it really fascinating that you, you, people could kind of see that you were struggling with school in grade three and you were pulled out of school because of that, but it was only diagnosed when you were 17. Yeah, yeah. And I know potentially, like I was defiant, but far from defiant as you were, I would often um, express my defiance in a very subtle way, um, a very passive aggressive way. And I, I wouldn't outright disobey anyone. Um, I was afraid and I would often hear things that you had done at school and I would be horrified. I'm like, how could you have um, actively gone against the wishes of authority like if they said wash the car and then you didn't wash the car i was baffled that you were so brazen um so yeah that 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 could potentially be why that you 
were taken to the next level and immediately, um, yeah, like put forward as someone with ADHD because if you're defiant, that means you're distracted. And <laughs> the cause of that is obviously something, um, something's wrong with you. So yeah, I'd say I, I definitely flew under the radar and um, I also wasn't in the school system for very long. And it only was when I came to the end of my homeschooling career, I actually only got diagnosed either at the end of my first year back when I did online school. Um, the last three years of my schooling, I did online. And that was with that I had to complete the IEB standard exams. I had to uh, once again compete at uh, a normal school level and that is when my ADHD actually like really started affecting me once I had all this work to do and I was taken away from the um, more comfortable uh, homeschooling environment in which uh, academics was not the primary focus and I would say could I, could I just interject here why do you yeah, yeah why do you think um being in a more normalized school system so just just for context you were mm -hmm. studying through an online school so you were you were studying from home um this was for your last year or two in high school if i remember correctly or last three years yeah, in last high three years yeah it was grade 10 11 and 12 and but you were still writing exams in person and you still had like a you had like a, a schedule and it was a lot more structured than the type of homeschooling you'd done. What what about that type of school system do you think brought the ADHD to light? Um, that is a very good question. I would say the amount of work was definitely greater. As I mentioned, I would I would only have to do a certain amount of work, and it, the academics was less of a focus partially because I resisted it incredibly and um, partially just because my parents saw that my weak, my strength was not in, not in academics and enabled me to actually pursue other passions and other pursuits. I had the time to do so and um, this one was my strengths. So I, but then immediately once I was fulfilling the exact same requirements, the exact same amount of lessons in work, and all of those things that of a, of a school system, I just couldn't keep up. I think it was pretty much just the inability to maintain that, what well, to actually meet the standards that were set out before me. I just fell behind incredibly. I, I, and it wasn't entirely that the work I would produce was of a low quality. It was that I would not be able to produce a lot of work. I would sit with an assignment that should take me an hour and not do anything for five hours. Um, and I think that's when it became quite clear that it was nothing to do with intelligence or capability, but it was my ability to actually complete a task and to sit down and focus on that task. Mm. Um, so it, it became quite clear quite quickly that that was what was hindering me most. Yeah. And I think, I think this is also, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's, we can speak a bit about like the stigmas of 
ADHD, but I mean, you're, you're by no means a stupid person. So I think one of the issues with, with the school system, and I went through the, the school system in its entirety. Um, so that's why I thought this conversation would be interesting. But one of the, the things that I struggled also with the school system is if there was a section of work that you were familiar with or found easy, you still had to do it regardless. But if there was a section of work that you found difficult, they wouldn't wait for you until you understood that section of work. You kind of just had to learn faster. It kind of reminds me of that meme where, where that guy's waiting for a bus and and he's like, yeah, I'm waiting for the bus. And then the person he's talking to is like, well, hurry up. And he's like, okay, I'll wait faster. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not, you can't always necessarily speed up the learning process. And I, I, I think that's probably why your ADHD probably wasn't found until you were later on in your schooling careers because it lacked that structure. So with things that you found easy and were passionate about, it was smooth sailing for you. But when it came to things that you struggled with, and I mean, I, re- I really struggled with what we call core maths here in South Africa. And um, like, I'm having to learn it again. And I'm like, why the heck did I struggle with this? But it's because I can learn it at my own pace. So I want to mm-hmm. ask you a follow-up question. Um, do you ever get irritated with people that kind of embody ADHD as their entire identity i would say yes there is a level of frustration but i understand it because that is something i immediately did when i first got diagnosed i immediately understood okay this is um this is it explains everything it took a great weight off my shoulders and it became something that i could attribute a lot of my faults and flaws to and a lot of them were um a result of adhd and um i guess it, it, it was a mixed thing because i was under the impression that if i was taking my medication which my medication would last for 12 hours then i was completely fine so um from the moment i woke up till um pretty much all important tasks were done for the day i was under the impression that I was cured and it, medication was incredible. So, so um, it definitely, it, it definitely makes sense to me because also when I went off medication, when I did my gap year, I also would attribute certain uh, things that I would do to ADHD. And I think a, a balance does need to be struck. I think it's important important to acknowledge the things that are a result of ADHD, but not use it as a crutch, use it as a way to understand yourself and then make adjustments. So yes, I do get frustrated when people, and I'd say it's it's like a lot of things, when people have some sort of explanation for a flaw, they will immediately take that flaw. And um, when they fail, they will say, oh, it's because of this. And um, it frustrates me because that is there's nothing that that achieves, and um, I don't know. Having all of these other things, I think it eventually mounts up, like builds up, and you realize, okay, I have all of these things. Medication does help, but the only thing I can do other than that is use it to understand myself and adjust. So um, it frustrates me when people don't do that when they don't use their 
don't use the knowledge to improve themselves. They use the knowledge to justify uh, failure. Yeah, they use it as an excuse almost. And I think yeah. one one thing that always makes me skeptical of people when they say they have ADHD is I think I, I don't know the stats off my top of my head, but I'm I'm fairly certain that ADHD is probably one of the most commonly misdiagnosed things. I mean, take take me for example. I know I know this is anecdotal evidence. Um, where I was just a kid that liked climbing trees and they're like, this boy obviously has ADHD because he's a bit rebellious and wants to run around instead of stare at a book for eight hours a day. Um, and then, yeah, I think, I think it's always made me skeptical of people when they say, oh yeah, no, I have ADHD. I'm like, okay, do you just struggle to focus or is it something that you've actually been diagnosed with? And if you have been diagnosed with it, um, is it is it an accurate diagnosis? Because I mean, I I'm, I know you who's like I always just thought you're an extreme procrastinator, but actually it's just <laughs> ADHD. And then another mm. mutual friend that we have, Simon, who is like this next level of ADHD. He is like, you know, the the best comparison I can think of for him is the squirrel from Over the Hedge, Hammy. That True. that's literally Simon. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's that's an accurate description yeah, yeah. so yeah. the the next thing i want to ask you about is my my entire life i always knew you as this person that just loved sleeping and could sleep a lot and that actually led into the diagnosis of something else could you tell us a bit about that so it's yeah i was basically i've always had trouble sleeping at least the beginning parts of it, the second part, I had no trouble with. And that was a wonderful part. So it was the getting being... to sleep that you struggled with. Yeah, yeah. So initially getting to sleep was a challenge. And what I loved about, well, what I struggled with prior to homeschooling was waking up in the morning because I would not fall asleep late at night. I would say it got worse the older I got. And yeah, by the end of my not, not conventional schooling career i was i was unable to uh get a full eight hours of sleep i would wake up um in the morning as late as i possibly could and rush to get ready for school get ready for school my dad left behind one time because he was like <laughs> you can't you can't keep doing this but it was yeah it was it was a struggle and then homeschooling i was able to wake up at nine o'clock every day so i was getting full eight hours or so i wasn't really tracking at the time but i was getting plenty of sleep and that was wonderful and then i moved like halfway through i started waking up at 10 o'clock and um even then i'd wake up i'd still be very sleepy struggle to get to sleep the night um later that night but it was much better I got plenty of sleep and um, sleep is important. Sleep is, especially in those phases, like teenage phases, waking up at 10, the amount of brain development that probably happened as a result that I would have lost at conventional school, I am so grateful for. Yeah. So yes, and then later on, I would say probably it was 2018. So about the age of, well, I, prior to that, I had a lot of different, tried a lot of different things. I tried uh, 
herbal remedies. I had tried melatonin. At one point, I was taking Dormanoct, which is a very, very intense sleeping drug that would knock me out immediately. And I would use that in uh, dire situations, um, but not too regularly. And um, I did try melatonin. It didn't quite work for me. And then I was, it was, yeah, about 2018, 2017, 2018, I, I got diagnosed with delayed sleep phase syndrome, which, yeah, oh, actually, before I go to that diagnosis, I'll just talk about uh, 2017 for me, where I once again had a conventional job. I wasn't exercising, well, I was exercising a lot, but nothing like my previous gap year. And that just meant that having to be at work at half past seven was near impossible to do with eight hours of sleep. So doing that. Yeah, and I want, I want I, to interject here because yeah. I was working, there's actually an interesting thing happened there because you and I were working together at that company and we were both doing a very similar thing, but the type of work that we were doing was a lot more up my tree. It was a lot more suited to me, I'd say. Um, and it was also quite a stark contrast to what you were doing the year before. So the year before, what exactly were you doing in your gap year? Where were you and what were you doing? So um, my gap year was a lot. It was a seven month gap year course in Zimbabwe and involved a, just a long list of different um, skills. Uh, we would do stuff from uh, postmaster speeches and cooking lessons to uh, construction, electronics, um, constant every, every day wake up for exercise, uh, intense training, six days a week. And yeah, just lots and lots of skills. We would and, travel and around. Where, where was it based? Yeah. Uh, Zimbabwe, so just outside of Bulawayo in yeah. Zimbabwe. So I just want to I want to paint a bit of a, a bit yeah. bit of picture for people because you were like in the middle of the bush, weren't you? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So you were sleeping in tents. So I mean, when you say, "Oh, we're doing Toastmasters um, speeches and learning to cook," like people could in initially conjure pictures of a hotel or something. No, you were sleeping in mm. tents in the middle of the bush, and then you fast forward to I mean, sorry, like. You were shooting guns, riding bicycles around, um, mm. running around in the bush and learning all these other very interesting skills, um, spending a lot of time outdoors. And then fast forward to 2017, what were you doing? Yeah, 2017, I was trying to distinguish between 10 separate light bulbs, uh, trying to find the difference <laughs> between those 10 different light bulbs and then copying and pasting that information into an Excel spreadsheet. Um, that was the majority of my work. I did do some product photography, but the spreadsheets took up most of my time and it was, it was, it was painful, um, especially at the end of it. Yeah. So and, you and I were working at a e-commerce company and part of that required, um, the both of us to spend, um, copious and generous amounts of time staring at spreadsheets. Yeah. What, what affected yeah. that? Most of our time was taken out. Well, it had a lot of effects. Um, as I was talking about, the sleep was a challenge. Having to be at work at half past seven every morning was probably one of the tougher parts because I would not—I would get six hours or less sleep every night, 
and to keep myself going, I would drink a lot of monster energy drinks. Uh, we made a stack against our wall, uh, hundreds of cans. Yeah, um, you and I became yeah. quite the connoisseur of energy drinks. Yeah, yeah. Running off caffeine uh, constantly and I would get to the weekend, I'd crash. I would sleep in uh, just trying to catch up uh, 13, 14 hours a day uh, and then repeat the next week. And it also resulted in, and I find that if I don't get enough sleep, I tend to have a weakened immune system, but get quite sick. So, uh, where I don't get sick too often, but when I do get sick, it's for a long time and it's bad. So, um, sick a lot, always tired, never got anything done outside of work. And it's yeah. And, and I, and I did try a lot of different things, um, prior to finishing school. Uh, during my working year and uh, post that when I started studying in 2018 and I tried going off caffeine. I tried all these, I tried light therapy or wouldn't say light therapy, but just utilization of warm light opposed to cool light. I know that's, there's a lot of uh, controversy around that, but I did try it, try to make it using warm lights, tried dimming lights, tried exercising. I tried pretty much everything I could. And it was, yeah, near the end of 2017, still working. I went to the psychiatrist and got uh, diagnosed with a delayed sleep phase syndrome or delay, delayed sleep phase disorder. And that sorry, what, what year was that? Uh, end of 2017. So okay. prior to going to university, which was in 2018. So yeah, end of 2017, I basically was now able to get melatonin. Uh, a couple of years ago, or a couple of years prior to that, melatonin was, hey, you could purchase it off the shelf. It was not at all regulated. And um, I once, and having had it before, I went to the pharmacist and I said, can I get some melatonin? They said, no. So I was like, that's strange. Um, but then after being diagnosed, I was able to get melatonin, which was great. And I've been using it ever since. And it's, it's great. Um, how, it pretty how much... is that like the change from before you using melatonin to now, like what, what are the, the biggest like changes that you've seen? I'd say the biggest one is sleep becomes quickly. I no longer lie awake. I, I, I did. I actually do still have some nights where I do lie awake for many, many hours into the early mornings, but that was pretty much every night. And now I can, I can fall asleep almost instantly. I would say, uh, compared to what it used to be before. It's, it's an incredible, um, incredibly powerful drug. Um, and it, it does, it does require you to have, like, if you don't exercise, if you don't you're not living healthy and if you're not tired it, it's not going to work because it's it's a natural yeah it's an it's a natural thing that your brain produces and about the combination of sleep pressure and all of those things it's not going to make you tough it's not going to make you tired it just it's just a slight switch in your brain but it enables me to sleep within half an hour which is magical so, i mean it's, it's not like a sleeping it's not like a, a sleeping pill which will like almost force you into sleep it basically is just supplementing the missing melatonin that that you lack yeah. 
yeah is that correct and okay. yeah and and so with delayed sleep phase syndrome it's what it basically is is that my brain only produces melatonin in the late hours of the night opposed to when the sun goes down and uh supplementing with myself with melatonin enables me to fit into the schedule that the rest of the world has it so if you yeah. if you weren't required to wake up at like seven or eight in the morning would you stop taking melatonin like if you could like work any schedule that you wanted would you stop taking it or would you carry on taking it? potentially i i do see a lot of benefit to it um it it it, it your brain does when the lights when the morning comes your brain tells you to wake up and without melatonin i will fall asleep late and have, I, I have experimented with this since actually taking it um constantly yeah in the last few years I've, I've experimented with this and not taking melatonin fall asleep very late but then when the early hours of the morning come along it will wake me up and i will very easily be able to fall back to sleep but it'll be somewhat of a restless sleep so i feel like if i following a a more natural and when i say natural i mean a more conventional sleeping pattern does have its advantages um following the sun does have its advantages and perhaps if i used blackout curtains and created my own simulated um day and night then that would be incredibly beneficial and i could um either go i could potentially go off melatonin but i'd say because a society runs um, in a specific way it prioritizes people who go to bed early and wake up early there's not not much benefit into going off that um so yeah. so to people so to people listening i mean you you struggle to to get to sleep and um obviously that was due to your delayed phase sleep syndrome so were you and at what point were you um diagnosed with depression um depression was last year <laughs> it was um yeah it was an interesting point in my life re reaching the end of university going into a film industry that wasn't that was barely um alive and trying to find work trying to find uh, independence and instead spending most of my time alone at home was suddenly a time for reflection a time for um yeah a time to actually confront things that were challenging me and um it was near the end of the year that i eventually just reached the point where i couldn't not reach out to people and reaching and i eventually reached out to some of the closest people in my life um mostly family and just said that i wasn't doing great and i wanted to seek professional help i did so and went to both a psychologist and a psychiatrist and then got tension well it's i was told that i potentially had bipolar type 2 well bipolar and this 
there's talk of whether there's like a one or a two people most people say it's a spectrum and i basically started taking mood stabilizers which would only work with bipolar disorder and then beginning of this year i got officially diagnosed with bipolar and then pretty much i've just been taking medication and going to a psychologist since then which what has been life-changing it's so, so when you say life-changing what do you mean by that it's 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 affected every element of my life it's permeated across everything it's in a good way me in in a in an incredibly positive way um i know like when i was first diagnosed with adhd i got incredibly excited i thought this drug is going to change my life and it's going to uh, fix everything that is wrong with me and it seemed to do so partially for many reasons it had a massive positive effect but it eventually wore off and i was just it was helping me with some things but it hadn't changed my life and when i first started taking my medication for bipolar i was very skeptical of that i was concerned that i was i was concerned that a placebo effect was yeah. taking hold of me were you, and... were you almost like oh this is not another concerta or another melatonin it's just going to fix a little thing or make yeah. a little bit of a difference yeah yeah and i was concerned that the little bit of a difference that it had at the beginning would not last and um yeah potentially not last at all I'm like, oh and if it's a placebo effect then maybe it won't have any effect of no time at all and then it enabled it gave me a power i'd say it gave me the power to start dealing with everything else not through the power of the drugs but with the assistance of the medication it enabled me to focus more and focus more on my work enabled me to focus on my relationships it gave me um it, it, it basically took away some anxiety that I would feel in social situations and enabled me to confront those anxious emotions in without closing up. I would say that, that that's what happened a lot. I was so incredibly closed up and almost numb to all, like the only way I was able to cope was numbing myself to everything around me and not only uh, preventing negative emotions from affecting me but with that preventing positive things from affecting me yeah. and, and i think the, suddenly, the most crazy yeah. thing to me about i mean it, we've got sponello listening and you myself and sponello we've been we've been best friends for like pretty much our entire life and i mean i knew about your adhd but i didn't i didn't know much about the sleep disorder i'm like yeah he struggles to sleep cool he's taking some medication for it whatever and i think this is just the nature of males like we're just told to like kind of like just uh yeah you'll get over it and then but i didn't even realize that you're going like through a depressive episode or anything like that um and i think i think that's just the it's it's an innate quality of males it's just to not talk about this stuff because of the stigma yeah. around it what would you yeah. say to people that were experiencing the same symptoms as you specifically? Um, I don't know, just the, the stuff to do with the bipolar and the depression. 
and they're wanting to to they're wanting to speak to someone about it, but they're just not sure where to start. What would you say to them? I would say one of the hardest things, and this was maybe it was it was a personal thing. I don't know if it's the same for everyone, but I would say one of the hardest things actually is opening up to the other people. Um, I don't know what caused that, but there was just this desire for self-dependency, um, a fear that asking for the assistance of others was somehow a weakness. And also in combination with that, I felt that there was a, I, I didn't feel that my, I didn't feel like my feelings were valid. I didn't feel, and it took me a long time to realize that I actually was depressed. It was a thing that baffled me um, when I, it, it baffles me now how I could have felt like that, but I did. I felt so strongly that my feelings of depression were not valid and that it's, you see all these depictions of depression in uh, uh, media and hear from other people who have gone through it. And it immediately, it, it seems like, okay, I'm not that, I'm not as bad as them. And therefore I do not deserve the same treatment as them and almost and like seeking the treatment that they receive somehow feels like I am trying to, I felt like taking something away from them. It's like, they are obviously worse off than me and they deserve this more than I do. So it, it was, it was hard to admit it to myself. And then once admitting it to myself, seeking out the help of others was incredibly difficult, wanting mm. to be dependent, wanting to solve things by yourself, because it would be great if I could have simply solved things by myself. I'm a strong individual. I consider myself yeah. reasonably I mean, you, intelligent. You're like, you're like the problem solve uh, extraordinaire in my mind. Like, I mean, I just mm. remember like growing up, there was never something you couldn't make. And it was even like a comment that people would ma make when you were looking at stuff. Um, like you just like pick up like, something off of a coffee table and you'd be staring at it and someone would say, uh, oh, see, Joel's trying to figure out how he can make that thing again. So like problem solving and like, um, what is it? Reverse engineering stuff is, I guess, like an innate part of your personality. So it must've been incredibly frustrating for you to not be able to solve this thing on your own. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, that's exactly it. I felt I, I want to do this in my own strength. I should be able to do so. What will in be involving others? How will that help me? But I found the moment I opened up to other people, uh, asked for their help, simply that opening up uh, kind of freed me in a way and enabled me to realize that asking for help isn't so bad. And once I was able to do that, I was once I was able to open up to a single person that suddenly freed me to open up to far more people and that it, 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 it helped me in the healing process and also helped me in a lot of other areas. It helped me just develop a vulnerability with other people and that vulnerability also benefited other people. It, it created a connection that they were able to share stuff with me that, um, 
that I was able to respond to, well, they would respond to my vulnerability with their own vulnerability. And I found that to be so enriching, not only for myself, but for everyone else involved. And, um, and I, and I do, I do some every now and again, I'll have a moment in which I'll feel, oh no, I opened up way too much. Like, why did I say that in that group of people? And I'd say it, it is, I like, maybe I did do so. Maybe I made some people uncomfortable, but, um, I am suddenly going from this incredibly closed up person who would not let anything in and never send anything out to suddenly being so incredibly open and vulnerable and, um, trying to gauge like all these things is, is challenging. Like how do normal people interact with one another? Um, it's, it's, yeah, I'm like suddenly rediscovering stuff. A lot of people maybe um, gauge when they were like younger, but I'm trying to suddenly gauge what is socially appropriate. What is, what are all of these things? So mm. it's a, it's a turbulent period, but incredibly freeing and overall, um, overall a positive. Yeah. So I've got a follow-up question for you. Um, you've, you've obviously like gone through a bit of a journey and I don't really like that word because it's a bit of a cliched word, but I mean, you got diagnosed with ADHD and then the depression and the, the, the bipolar was kind of interlinked. So you've, you've kind of mm -hmm. gone through like this chain process, um, of like discovering these, um, I don't know what you want to call them, um, mental illnesses, whatever they, they are. I don't know what label you'd put on them, but you, you've kind of gone on this journey or this road discovering them in in retrospect and you know what they say hindsight is twenty twenty. in retrospect is there anything you would have done to maybe get those things diagnosed sooner so you could be in this like place that you are now because it seems like you're in a pretty good place right now if you could go back mm -hmm. what would you have done to basically solve these issues quicker so that is a very good question i would say the one in retrospect that as i've already mentioned um is showing vulnerability and opening up to people. That is the one that has affected me most. Um, and had the biggest change in my life, that is the one that I can't believe I did not open up earlier. And I would have definitely done so earlier if I knew how it would change me. And I can't quite think of anything else. I don't. Could I ask you a follow-up question think, on that? Yeah, yeah. Was yeah. there ever a time that you were speaking to someone before you got diagnosed with depression or bipolar, and someone <laughs> said to you, um, "Joel, maybe you should go speak to someone," or was there ever a time that someone said, "Hey, maybe you should speak to someone," and you kind of just dismissed it? I don't think anyone ever said that seriously. I would say everyone who was close enough with me to actually identify those things. Um, I would say I was very good at masking it. I, it, even, even if I felt like I reached the point where I just wanted to express my frustration with something where I wanted to, um, let some of the emotion that was boiling in me come out. 
I was very good at passing it off as comedic. And I, yeah, I, I, I realized this is one of the things that I, I don't know, I find so strange, but what I would do is I would let one of those emotions come out and then immediately take it to another level, take it to a hyperbolic level and almost pretend like I was joking from the start, even though it was a true emotion. And, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was bad. Like I legitimately, and I was so good at it that I don't think anyone realized I would constantly joke about being depressed. I would, um, I looked at my Kindle highlights from uh, that period and especially like philosophy and stuff. I was like, I was clearly, a, this was a cry for help. Like highlighting this was quite something. And, and then I would send that quote to people. I'm like, look how funny this quote is. And it was almost like a, ha -ha, look how much this describes me kind of thing or it, in a way, but I would, I would do it in a way that was so hyperbolic. Like I wouldn't just, it, it, what, cause very often my, my impression of a depressed person would be that they would drop these subtle hints and they would be subtle and then it would be like, okay, I'm be beginning to be concerned. But the way I would present it is like, there's no subtlety to it. I am presenting it um, in such a hyperbolic way that it's too absurd to be real. And um, I feel like this guy's did very well. Like I was. Um, I mean, I was your best. Uh, I am your one of your best friends and I had no cooking clue what was going on. So I'd say so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and, and it would legitimately be with you and Sponello. I would. I'd be playing League of Legends and I'm like, yo, I'm so depressed today. Um, something along those lines. Um, but obviously but it's almost, not. It's almost become a thing in this day and age. Like you just say, oh, I'm so d depressed. And it's like, like mm -hmm. people almost just use it as a, a replacement for the word sad. Oh, I'm just feeling sad or I'm just feeling deflated and lacking energy, which is both symptoms of depression, but not necessarily depression in, a, in and of itself. Yeah. So yeah. I want to bring this to a close and there's a whole bunch that I, I still want to talk to you about at some point. Maybe, maybe we could do it in another podcast. I'd love to speak to you about your approach to writing and more about your delayed, um, face sleep, your delayed sleep phase syndrome. I wrote it the wrong way around here. Hmm. Um, I know you and I have both read, uh, Dr. Stephen Walker's book. So I'm sure there's a lot we could unpack there. And I also wanted yeah. to get your thoughts on homeschooling and and how that could look different in the future or how maybe it should just stay mm -hmm. the same. And finally, you're, you're in the, the film industry and I'd love to learn and talk more about like your experiences there. But I, I want to wrap it up with um, three questions, if that's okay. So what is, what is, if you were to gift a book frequently to friends, what would it be? It, it would depend on the friend entirely. Um a tendency that I have with both movies and books, uh, specifically movies is I would gauge the, how absurd the friend, um, how much absurdity a friend could, uh, take and, and recommend the most absurd thing I can, that they will be able to handle. And it also depends on the age of the friend and everything would probably say the name of the wind. At the moment, the name of the wind. The yeah. Okay. 
And why, why do you say that? What, what about that book like stuck out to you? So for me, it was a book that kind of reignited my desire to write it. It was, it's not the best fantasy book. It's not the best written book ever. It is well written and it's incredibly long, but it's, it's something that just excited me. And a lot of my friends, I feel it would excite as well. Just the fantasy world that it creates is beautiful. And I think fantasy, like the, the Narnia series is, is probably the books, books that have inspired me the most. Um, but yeah, finding, finding a, a book that creates a beautiful fantasy world and ignites a desire for the otherworldly for I would say that it creates for something for for something magical and uh, um, that's fine we can we, can we can leave yeah, it there so the name of the mm -hmm. wind okay now if you yeah. could put any message on a billboard next to one of the busiest highways in South Africa what would it be there's definitely a lot of different things that you could put up each with a completely different goal. There's my goal to inspire, to change people's minds, to get people to think. A good one would be everything is going to be fine. Is that, is that from Adventure Time? Perhaps. Uh, it's something I wrote down in my notebook once to tell myself. It, it reminds um, me is one that may affect people in different ways. I would say simply having it up there, people wondering why did somebody put that up there? Who paid money to put that up there and get people thinking like, is are things going to be fine? It may some, make some people angry. It makes some people say nothing, everything isn't going to be fine. My life is horrible. And yeah, I think the simplicity of it would definitely spark people's imagination and maybe some people something that some people need to hear yeah but absolutely. yeah yeah but anyways joel um it's been really awesome interviewing you and there's there's a whole bunch of other things that i, I want to talk to you about in the future um stuff that i can't even mention because it's part of a, a larger scheme that you are scheming up but I think that could be a really cool conversation um, about how you invested over three or is it four years into learning something and not many people suspected it. Um, but yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure interviewing one of my best friends. Mm, it was a great interview. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by The Roundup. It is my very own newsletter. And it is a weekly newsletter that I send out to currently over 300 people every week. It's growing incredibly fast by between 30 and 50 people per month are subscribing to this newsletter. I share every week, I share at least one cool thing that I found on the internet, a thought of my own or a synthesis of the two, as well as tips, tricks and other interesting things to do with entrepreneurship, self-development and productivity. You can head over to my website rossgriffin.com 
and hit the newsletter tab to subscribe. The newsletter is also a great place to ask me questions, interface with me, and possibly even get onto this podcast if that's what you so desire.